In this two-part interview, we speak with Professor David Schluter, a subject matter expert on the role of commanders in the military justice system. This topic is at the forefront of many legal practitioners' minds as Congress and senior government officials have endorsed removing commanders' authority to prosecute sexual assault and similar felony-level cases. Assuming these reforms take effect, this will be another large change in the practice of military justice. In this interview, Professor Schluter discusses the history of the commander's role in the military justice system, his analysis on some of Congress's main proposals, and his forecast on how military justice may look with some of these changes. Here are a few clips from part one of the interview. The one that I think that's getting the most attention right now is to take the commander out of the referral and referral stage and put it in the hands of a legal office. And so what we're really shifting toward is a similar bifurcated system. Some offenses will be handled by the new prosecution office, some will not. Welcome to the Air Force Judge Advocate General's Reporter Podcast, where we interview leaders, innovators, and influencers on the law, leadership, and best practices of the day. And now to your host from the Air Force Judge Advocate General School. Welcome to another episode from the Air Force Judge Advocate General School at Maxwell Air Force Base. I'm your host, Major Rick Hanrahan. Remember, if you like the show, please consider subscribing on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast platform and leaving a review. This helps us grow an outreach to the JAG Corps and beyond. In this interview, we're going to tackle one of the most hot button and followed issued in the military today concerning the role of commanders in the military justice system. And we have a distinguished guest and renowned expert on the topic, Professor David Schluter. Sir, thank you for coming on the show today. Good morning. It's my pleasure. Professor Dave Schluter received his BA degree from Texas A&M University in 1969 and his JD degree from Baylor University School of Law in 1971. In 1981, he received an LLM from the University of Virginia. He served on active duty as an Army JAG Corps officer from 1972 until 1981. During that time, he served as an appellate counsel at the Army's Government Appellate Division, as Chief of Criminal Law at Fort Belvoir, Virginia, and as a faculty member in the Criminal Law Division at the Army Judge Advocate General's Legal Center and School in Charlottesville, Virginia. He resigned his regular Army commission in 1981 to accept an appointment by Chief Justice Warren Berger to the Office of Legal Counsel to the U.S. Supreme Court. In that position, he provided general and special counsel advice to Chief Justice Berger, the court, and the individual justices. He retired with the rank of Lieutenant Colonel in 1997 from the United States Army Reserve JAG Corps. In 1983, Professor Schluter accepted a position on the law faculty at St. Mary's University in San Antonio, Texas, where he continues to teach and publish today. During his career, he has taught in multiple areas with an emphasis in evidence, trial advocacy, constitutional law, criminal law, and criminal procedure. He has won multiple awards for his teaching and publishing excellence and currently sits as the Hardy Chair Emeritus and Professor of Law at St. Mary's. From 1985 to 2005, he served as the reporter to the Federal Rules of Criminal Procedure Advisory Committee, a position to which U.S. Supreme Court Justice William Rehnquist appointed him. He is an elected fellow in the American Law Institute and is a life fellow of the American Bar and Texas Bar Foundations 
and is regularly listed in Who's Who in American Law. And as to publications, Professor Schluter has published extensively over his career to include numerous articles and 12 books, such as the Military Rules of Evidence Manual, 9th edition, 2020, LexisNexis, the Military Criminal Justice Practice and Procedure, 10th edition, 2018, LexisNexis, and Military Evidentiary Foundations, 6th edition, 2016, LexisNexis. His articles and books have been cited over 1,500 times by state and federal courts, including the U.S. Supreme Court, in three cases. And for today's interview, we're going to work off one of his more recent article publications titled, Taking Charge of Court-Martial Charges, the Important Role of the Commander in the Military Justice System, a 2020 publication in New York University Journal Law and Liberty with co-author Lisa Schenck. Well, sir, it is evident uh, that's a remarkable career and legacy that you've left, and I know that you're um, nearing retirement there. But with that, please feel free to elaborate a little bit on your bio, your current position, and what you're focusing on right now for our listeners. Well, thank you very much for that introduction. Uh, I've been very blessed to have held a number of different positions and opportunity to work with uh, a lot of individuals. And I, I think as it relates to today's topic, I probably got really interested in this when I was teaching at the, uh, the Army JAG School and was uh, teaching a seminar for what was then the advanced class, it's now the LLM program, on the analysis of the uh, military justice system. And it was kind of a, a it was a seminar that was designed to uh, to challenge the thinking of the participants in the seminar as to the the various aspects of military justice. And one of the classes focused on the role of the commander. And I remember uh, in those days we still had uh, I think they were green chalkboards in one of the uh, the lecture rooms at the Jack School. And I put a a chart on the uh, the board and listed the various functions that a commander currently uh, exercised and uh, had yes, no, maybe. And uh, I think there were about 20 people in the seminar. At the end of the two-hour seminar, we all looked at the chart in silence and uh, I erased it and I said, okay, that's for the purpose of discussion because the results were astounding. Um, These were all JAGs probably with four or five years experience. I'd had probably eight or nine at that point. And we had talked about the issues, and we had checked off on the role of the commander. Probably half of them were X's, where it wasn't absolutely essential that a commander take a part. And I didn't record the chart. I just remember that everyone just kind of looked there and thought, you know, this is potential heresy, because at that point, the commander's role was firmly embedded. And I've never forgotten that experience. And then as I progressed through my career and started doing more writing, I gave a uh, a lecture at the Air Force JAG School for the 50th anniversary of the UCMJ, and I had read an article uh, by a uh, Herbert Packer uh, that I had studied when I was doing my LLM work, and it really intrigued me. And he he talked about the policies, the competing policies in a criminal justice system. On the one hand, you have the crime control model, and then you have the due process model. And uh, I used that and translated that into justice versus discipline. I gave the speech. I kept all my notes and really didn't do anything with it until about four or five years ago when I dug out my notes and decided to do a law review article on it uh, entitled The Military Justice Conundrum, Justice or Discipline? Question mark. 
And I really dug into the issue like I had never dug in before. And I concluded uh, when I finished that article that the primary purpose of military justice had been and should be uh, enforcement of discipline. In other words, more of a crime control model. That doesn't mean that there's not a role for justice. Uh, but that article got a lot of traction. It's been read a lot. It's been cited a lot. Uh, and so you have the two sides of the coin. Is the purpose of our system justice or is it discipline? And I think that's what's coming to the fore now in this debate in Congress about the role of the commander and the role of JAGs. So, sir, maybe we could just start off kind of very broadly with hopefully maybe a simple but could be a, a, a tougher question to sometimes even answer is, to provide an overview on the role of the commander military justice system and what is the importance of the commander's role in that system? You know, I've talked with a number of people and uh, they always ask me, well, can you show us any statistics to show that taking the commander out of the system will have an adverse impact on good order and discipline? And I say, I don't, I don't know of any studies. I suppose you could run a survey. But at the core of all of this is that the commander has always been an integral part of the military justice system. And I think it's really important in talking with commanders, they understand that if they have a command presence in the unit, if the unit knows that they are taking an interest in uh, disciplinary matters, if, if they've got a handle on what's going on on the weekends and the in the barracks or in the uh, apartments or the dorms or wherever they're all housed, that that has a positive impact on the unit. They know that the commander cares. And I think this is especially important. What they tell me is that it's especially important in terms of the unit knowing and understanding and believing that the commander will take swift action if they do anything wrong. And so that's always been a part of the system, but it's an elusive part because you can't quantify it. You can't say, if you take that power away, then things are going to go downhill. And I think that if it's really just a question in the past, that position has not really been challenged on the Hill because there were a lot of people serving in Congress who had prior military experience. The Pentagon had credibility. If the Pentagon went over and told the members of Congress that it was really important to keep the role of a commander in the system, Congress generally listened. There were some naysayers, and there were those who and one of them was Senator Gillibrand, because she's been pushing this issue since about 2013, 2012. But the Pentagon was was trusted. I think that trust has eroded. And I think that probably explains in part why there's an increasing momentum to remove the commander from the system. And I might just add, I think I, I apologize if I'm being overly broad about removing the commander, because. If you talk to the proponents of these changes, it's really only affecting a very small percentage of commanders, and they focus on the convening authorities. Well, that may be true, but the military justice system depends very heavily on the chain of command, starting with the company-grade officers all the way up through the chain of command with JAGs advising along the way. And as I understand it in this proposal, it would basically remove from all commanders the ability to weigh in on what should be done with uh, court-martial charges. Yes, sir. So would it be safe to say that the role of the commander has been something that's been imperative to our military justice system, going back to even colonial America through our major wars, uh, you know, through American expansion, um, even into the information age? Absolutely. Absolutely. As I discussed in that conundrum article, 
I talked about the historical roots of the court-martial, and the, the court-martial procedures have changed. They've changed for the better over the decades. There have been major periods where there were reforms. Uh, the UCMJ itself resulted from complaints by service members returning from World War II about how their commanders had uh, summarily punished them without giving them any due process. So the commander's role has always been there. And from my point of view, and I don't know if, if you want to follow up on this, but I, I always viewed the commander as my client. Uh, I gave the commander the best legal advice that I could. I was the uh, chief of the criminal law division at Fort Belvoir for a while, and I had contact with commanders. And there were a couple of cases where I recommended that they not go to trial because the evidence was weak or credibility was an issue. And we took alternative approaches. We generally walked them down the hallway to the administrative board office where they could could work on potentially boarding the individual out. But I always viewed the commander as the one who had the say on what should happen with a service member who had committed an offense. And I think some of that changed over the years because I think more and more JAGs, and so we may be responsible for this in many ways, we convinced ourselves and the commanders that we were the ones that were really in charge, that we really were the ones that held the the winning uh, deck and uh, the cards in the deck. And so uh, I think a lot of commanders uh, came to trust the JAGs and said, okay, whatever you think, sign with me, just give me the papers. And so I think over the course of time, and this pretty much traces the due process developments even in the civilian community, that as the rights of the accused have been expanded, the rights of the accused in the military have been expanded as well. But I always maintain that regardless of whether you agree that the purse of the system is justice or discipline, the commander has a key role in that. Yes, sir. And, and you know, as we discussed, uh, you and I kind of before this interview, um, to talk about this issue uh, as neutral and objective as we can from, from both sides, right, um, to listen to the pros and cons of this. With that kind of backdrop, you mentioned earlier that there's less members in Congress maybe today that have military backgrounds. Do you think that that has had a, a factor or a bigger factor in this issue now rising to the level where it seems to have support on the Hill? Yes and no. I just mentioned that I've talked with commanders who believe strongly that, that it's really important for them to continue to have a role. But I've also talked with commanders, and I hear this anecdotally, there are commanders that would be more than happy to give up that that power. So if you have former commanders, if you have former military in Congress and in this uh, environment where there's just kind of an eroding trust in the military's ability to take care of sexual assault cases, you might very well have former military members in Congress who believe strongly that it's time for a major change, that the lawyers really ought to take their hand at it and take the commanders out of the system. But my sense also is in talking with staff members at Congress that there still is always this kind of a cloud around. There's a mist hanging around the military justice system because they've watched old movies. They've watched a few good men. They've watched, uh, you know, the Kane mutiny. And so for them, military justice is potentially an archaic system. So uh, I've, in all my years of writing, I've always in my audiences, I talk about the need for respect in the system. So if there are former military officers or enlisted who are currently serving in Congress, it can cut both ways. But at least if they've been in the military, they probably understand more fully what the system looks like and how it works. They probably have at least one or two instances in their experiences where 
um, they can remember. Uh, one person, in the, for example, is uh, Senator Lindsey Graham, retired Air Force JAG. Uh, and I haven't reached out to him, but I'd be curious to see what he thinks about all of this and what position he's taking. Right. And that would also probably get into this, those second, third and fourth order effects, which we're also going to talk about here as well. Um, because if you have the, that military background, you're probably thinking about those those uh, additional impacts that it could have by taking away commander's authority. And just to be clear for our listeners, right, the hot button issue right now is to remove commander's authority from prosecuting sex assault cases and high level felony offenses. Uh, is that accurate, sir? Yes. And there are, I think, at last I've heard, I think there are two proposals. I think Congress, at least uh, Senator Gillibrand and her supporters, are, are trying to address, perhaps behind closed doors, some of the concerns that have been raised about uh, mixed offenses, bifurcating the system. So it may be that they're attempting to consider the uh, unintended consequences. But right now, that's the hot button subject, sexual offenses in the military. Yes, sir. And your article uh, gets into three main proposed categories to the change in the commander's role in military justice. Could you maybe elaborate that on that a little bit for our listeners? Uh, you're talking about the three potential um, approaches to the, the role of the commander in the system? Yes, sir. The three potential approaches and what it looks to be uh, the way that Congress likely will be going. Well, the, the one that I think that's getting the most attention right now is to take the commander out of the preferral and referral stage and put it in the hands of a legal office that would be outside the chain of command and it would be staffed by an 06 who has trial experience. Another proposal would be to shift all of military justice to civilian prosecutors. And I'm trying to remember the third one that I had in my article. You'll have to refresh my memory. I believe it had to do with um, giving the JAGs more control within the system, but keeping them in the chain of command. So the one that's getting all the attention right now is to let the military JAGs continue to prosecute the cases, not to shift it to the civilian community but to shift it to an office that's outside the chain of command, which in the article we refer to as really an ivory tower. It's going to be an office that's going to be geographically distanced simply because you're going to need a central office for prosecuting. If you're looking for an 06, one of the staffing problems is where do you find enough 06s who are willing at the end of their career to now go back and in effect be trial counsel? That's really what they're doing. They're going to be prosecutors. There might be a few that would really love to do that and see that as a transition into civilian life. But I think they're going to be clear staffing problems. So I think those were the three that I talked about. Yes, sir. And obviously, you know, there, there's, there can be pros and cons to all this. And as military, we have to remain apolitical and we're going to do uh, whatever Congress tells us. Absolutely. What are some of the, uh, I guess, strengths and weaknesses of the proposed changes versus kind of the way we've been doing business? Well, on the pro side, I have to hand it to the individuals who have been pushing this reform. They've, they've been tireless. This is, I should say, historically, this is not the first time there's been a real push to, uh, to take the commanders out of the preferral and referral process. Senator Birch Bayh back in the 70s, I believe, pushed very hard for this. And the, the New York uh, City Bar Association in the 70s pushed hard for it. I uh, remember being an active duty JAG and thinking, what are they thinking? Well, uh, they have been persistent. And I think 
The argument I think that probably carries greater weight is that when you lose trust in the system, when you lose trust in the military's ability to handle a particular problem, then you look for alternate solutions. And the most ready alternate solution that's been pushed for years and is now gaining traction is, well, you just put all of this in the hands of lawyers. Now, lawyers are going to be very sensitive to legal issues involved. And so on the one hand, there may be an unintended consequence for the proponents because I, I believe they're pushing because they really want to see more prosecutions for sexual assaults. But I don't know that putting in the hands of lawyers is necessarily going to answer that. The lawyers are going to look at it with the same approach that the lawyers in the field do now. And that is, is there sufficient evidence to prove beyond a reasonable doubt that the accused committed the alleged offense? So I think there's something to be said for putting it in legal hands uh, without having to consult with commanders. On one hand, that's going to be easier to do. Um, and I think there might be unintended consequences in terms of someone in a distant location trying to assess the witness's credibility. Um, in opposition to that, I think it, it, I just don't think it's wise to create a bifurcated system. I've been thinking more about this lately. Um, my co-author and I wrote an op-ed for The Hill about a month ago, and we got some pushback from some of the proponents of the change. And in our op-ed, we had cited the, uh, the service connection requirement that existed in the military for a number of years. That was established in 1969 by the U.S. Supreme Court in O'Callaghan. And that service connection requirement, and I remember it because I tried cases, I argued cases on appeal, um, Had the, the prosecutors had to show, or the commanders had to show, that the, the offenses in question were service-connected. And the court and the lower courts developed a complicated series of factors to be considered. You had the Relford factors, there were 12 of them. And so when the United States Supreme Court in Solario finally did away with the service connection requirement, there was a great sense of relief because it had really taken a lot of expenditure of times. We had an overseas exception, so the O'Callaghan uh, rule didn't apply overseas. And so what we're really shifting toward is a similar bifurcated system. Some offenses will be handled by the new prosecution office, some will not. And anytime you do that, there are going to be questions about, all right, well, where do you decide or when do you decide or how do you decide where the, the, the court's going to go, where the charges are going to go? Do they go to the system where the commander is out of it or do they go to the system where the commander is still very much a part of it? So I think that's one of the that's one of the counter arguments against it. But as I said, I can see the argument for just putting this in the hands of lawyers and um letting them make those uh, decisions and letting them make the final decisions. Yes, sir. And, and one question that might be hopefully an, an obvious one, it's a, probably a simple one and a, a surface question is, is the system in its current form, does it need reform? Well, in my opinion, no. I think there are some things that could be tweaked. I've always uh, believed in a, a random selection of members. We have that now modified. Um, I gave a speech at the Army JAG School about a legal system looking for respect, and I, I propose that we've got the computer systems now. There should be no reason why we couldn't select a panel completely at random. But uh, I don't think that's a great weakness in the system. It's, a, it's an aspect of the system that gets a lot of attacks. I think that we've come a very long way in terms of, especially with the 2016 Military Justice Act, it's looking more and more like a civilian trial system where the military judge has 
has more powers, um, rightly or wrongly, the military judge has the final say on the case rather than the convening authority issuing a promulgating order as in the old days, a military judge um, signs a judgment, which is very similar to what takes place in federal courts. But having looked at the system and studied it and written about it, um, I, I tend to be a defender of the system. And I understand that there are a lot of question marks about it. But I found that when I'm teaching my military law course, if I have two thirds of the students who are completely unfamiliar with the system, they reach the end of the semester and I give them an opportunity to do a paper. And most of them believe that at its core, the military justice system is a sound system. They can always find areas where they could tweak it a bit. Uh, but for the most part, they uh, they come into the system. They're interested in it to see what it's like. They read about it. And when at the end of the semester, they say, you know, I keep asking them, so what do you think of military justice? What would you change, if anything? So they, they generally are, are uh, of the view that the system is not need. It does not need major reform. And that's generally where I fall on this question. And with respect to the reform, I know there are some folks saying, well, you know, it sounds like the reform may be coming. Um, again, <laughs> military, we're apolitical. Whatever happens, happens, and we will we will work through it. But if the reform does occur, how might that impact some of those uh, second, third, and fourth order effects, such as nonjudicial punishment, pretrial confinement, speedy trial, pleas, uh, working with local civilian uh agencies and, and prosecutors, et cetera. And you have to add to that grants of immunity. Uh, I just skimmed through the 366-page report from a subcommittee of the Joint Service Committee. I don't know that it's widely available. Uh, I had a friend email me a month ago, uh, and I can't recall ever hearing that a report even existed. It was a report that was prepared at the direction of the Secretary of Defense in 2020, and it was in response to Section 540, I believe, of the National Defense Authorization Act of, I think it was 2020, where Congress um, directed that the Department of Defense look at uh, potentially establishing a pilot program. And in that report, I thought I had come up with an exhaustive list. They came up with what you call third and fourth order. They listed all of the articles of the UCMJ that would have to be changed, another list of articles that would probably have to be changed, and then they also address the manual for courts martial. So the, the downside of all of this is that I could see Congress saying, okay, this is the easy fix. We're taking charge. We're tired of hearing about sexual assaults in the military, so go do it. And the, the job will then fall on the shoulders of the folks in the Pentagon, the policymakers, to scramble. I'm hoping that if, if this goes through, that they would at least wait one or two years as they did with the Military Justice Act, because it's going to take that long to work through all of these. And as we, as I identified in that article, there are a number of areas where the commanders uh, have a say, Article 15, pretrial confinement, immunity, uh, dealing with the local uh, establishment as to where to bring charges. And so if you take the commander's power on those issues, then I assume Congress thinks that those should all be handled by this new legal prosecution office. Um, and if that's the case, then you're going to be dealing with all these questions at a great distance. Uh, for those in the audience who are, are currently practicing military justice, you're probably in an installation, maybe not always, but you may be at an installation where you're five minutes away from talking to the commander. 
where you can arrange a phone call or you can arrange a meeting in your office, go over the evidence, look through the case files. You can interview the witnesses, look them eye to eye, make an assessment of credibility, make an assessment on pretrial confinement. And so if if Congress decides that they want to take the commander completely out of the system, and I'm not sure, I want to be sure that that I'm not overly dramatizing the potential effect. I think these proposals would take the commander out of the system in terms of decisions to prefer and refer charges. Okay, that's one step. But then you have all these other areas where it's not clear what Congress really wants to do with their commander. So unless there's legislation of the contrary, I'm assuming the local commander would still be involved in pretrial confinement, maybe even grants of immunity. But those would all have to be coordinated with the legal office. That concludes part one of our interview with Professor Schluter. Please stay tuned for part two in the next episode for the remainder of this interview. Thank you for listening. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Air Force Judge Advocate General's Reporter Podcast. Please subscribe to our show on iTunes or Stitcher and leave a review. This helps us grow, innovate, and develop an even better JAG Corps. Until next time, nothing from this show or any others could be construed as legal advice. Please consult an attorney for any legal issue. Nothing from this show is endorsed by the federal government, Air Force, or any of its components. All content and opinions are those of our guests and hosts. Thank you.